Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, you're listening to Cue the Podcast. It is Tuesday, August the 4th. I'm Talia Schlanger, in for Tom Power. If you are a Twilight fan, today is Vampire Christmas. There's a brand new book in the Twilight series out today. It's called Midnight Sun. Stephanie Meyer is the woman behind the whole series. You're going to hear her conversation with Tom Power about writing this book I got to tell you, I found this a riveting conversation. First of all, Tom wasn't even allowed to read the book before interviewing Stephanie. That's how top secret all of this stuff was. She talked to him about this really awful thing that happened to her just over a decade ago when she was originally writing the draft for Midnight Sun, how she almost put aside the whole project entirely. She also said some pretty amazing things about the craft of writing and thinking from characters' perspectives because this book, Midnight Sun, is uh, from the perspective of, of another character, of Edward, whereas the first first book, Twilight, was from Bella's perspective. Anyway, stick around for that. I talked to Katie Munshaw, who is the lead singer of the band Dizzy. They've got a fantastic new album out now. Katie tackles issues like growing older, fears about death, all sorts of bright and sunny stuff. And she also told me uh, about how her grandmother and a voicemail played a particularly important role on this album. And if you think back to the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to you when you were in high school, chances are you don't want to dig it up again. You want to leave it in the in the back of the shame drawer forever. I know that's what I want to do with my most embarrassing high school memories. Uh, but Jenny Hahn will tell you about digging hers up and turning them into a series of wildly successful books, which became wildly successful films for Netflix. I'm talking about To All the Boys I've Loved Before. And Tom Power talked to Jenny about mining all of that em- embarrassment for art. Show starts now. Today's the big day. If you're a fan of the Twilight series, for the first time in a decade, there's a new book to sink your teeth into. Stephanie Meyer is back with Midnight Sun. It's a return to the world of love, romance, and the undead. And this book is a retelling of her debut novel, Twilight. In Twilight, the sweet and beautiful Bella told you the story. This time, That same story is told from the perspective of Edward, the dark and doomy vampire. These books are pretty much as big as books can get. They've sold hundreds of millions of copies around the world. They created a community of fiercely loyal fans. They've led to a series of hit films. But the road to writing this new book has been a tough one for Stephanie. And there was even a time she said she'd given up on it for good. Stephanie spoke to Tom Power about the one person who convinced her to return to Midnight Sun and how she eventually found her way back to the world she created, the one that changed her life. Listen to this. Stephanie, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. This is a weird interview for me. I'm not going to lie to you because, you know, at the time we're talking, the security around this book, around Midnight Sun, is so tight. 
I couldn't even get a chance to look at the book. It's completely under wraps to prevent any leaks. So just tell me about that. What's it like for you to be sitting on top of something that so many people are just dying to get their, their hands on? Well, it's uh, sometimes a little bit stressful. However, on this one, um, it's a little bit hard to spoil. Basically, everyone knows the plot already. So it's not like anyone can say, oh my gosh, this happens because everyone already knows that. So uh, it's not quite as stressful as it usually is. Obviously, nobody wants it to leak early, but um, there aren't real spoilers. Yeah, and I want to talk about that lack of spoilers in a second, but like, are you... Are you excited or are you nervous? It still is a new work coming out in some ways. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, a deeply anxious person, so I'm always <laughs> nervous. Excited is, is not an emotion I experience a lot. Nervous is definitely kind of a common one. I'm, you know what? Can I say as someone with anxiety, it is comforting to know that even when someone <laughs> kind of reaches your heights, you still are, get anxious. It makes me feel sort of better. I actually think it makes it worse, um, the anxiety. Like, it's not like you get to a place where I have been successful, so now I no longer feel anxiety. I think it, you get the, uh, I have been successful, so clearly I'm an imposter, and everyone's going to figure that out. That's, that's where that goes. I thought that would go away by, you know, like the third book, maybe, you know? No, it just gets worse. Oh, well, that's, that's somehow good to know and disheartening at the same time. <laughs> but, I mean, speaking of, this is sort of this... This this is this is a stage for you with this book that could be described as either kind of like a serene calm before the storm or sort of like a purgatory. Like, you know, these are the last moments in this that this book just belongs to you. I mean, is that is that bittersweet that you're about to put it out there or do you feel like celebrating? Um it's it, the bittersweet is definitely uh the feeling. I mean, honestly, the way I get through life is by not thinking about these things. So, I just sort of live in this world where I, nothing's happening. I haven't written any books. There's nothing to worry about. And then every now and then I have to step out of that little dream world and deal with the reality of it. But um, yeah, it's, it's always hard to put your, your work out into the world because you know, well, there'll be people who, who like it. There'll be people who don't. And, and no matter how many people like it, you always feel bad about those that don't. Um, so that's, that's always a, a harder thing. So let's talk about this this untalkaboutable book that is somehow <laughs> unspoilable and spoilable at the same time. Um, let, let's talk about it for a second. From what I understand, this is a retelling of the first novel of Twilight from the point of view of a different character. For those of the listeners who aren't familiar, you know, this time we see the story through the eyes of Edward, the vampire, while the original was uh, narrated by the female lead, Bella. Am I on the right track? Yep. So I understand that it's darker, even though it is the same story. It's told from a different perspective, and you said that made it a bit darker. Could you tell me about that? Yes. Um, so Bella, comparatively, is a very happy-go-lucky character. Like, she is 100% in for falling in love and having a happy ending. Um, Edward, on the other hand, because of what he is and how he views himself, doesn't really see himself as worthy of love, and he doesn't believe that there is a happy ending um, possible for him and Bella. So he's pretty... Um, pessimistic the entire time. This is all going to end in horror and tragedy. That's his mindset. Um, and it's all his own fault because he shouldn't have done any of the things that he did. He's feeling spiraling in guilt, having massive amounts of indecision and self-doubt. Um, so it's, it's just a, a harder place to be, I think. Also, it is a lot more realistic to my own mental state than than Bella's is. <laughs> oh, I was about to say. I mean, we just talked briefly about like how you know even when you have massive success, that that doesn't mean 
that you're not anxious. And yeah, you're, you're right. It does sound like you're writing about your own experience in some ways through Edward. Well, I've always felt like uh, I am closer to Edward in opinions and how I see the world. And when I was writing Twilight, I don't think his, I think people saw him as a very confident person. Mm. He was very sure of himself. He seemed in control of any given situation. Um, But meanwhile, I was always aware of where his head was even 15 years ago. Um, So to me, the things that were coming from him made perfect sense, but I don't know if they came across in a way that was clear as to what was really going on. I suppose I'll know, depending on how surprised people are by Midnight Sun or if they saw it coming. <laughs> Is it, do you learn something new about the story? Um, writing it from, I mean, the story that you wrote originally, do you learn something about it, writing through the perspective of a different character? Little things. Um, like I said, I was, I was aware of where Edward's head was when I was writing Twilight. So it's not a huge revelation, but there are moments where you're like, oh, so this to him is not a book with a happy ending. Okay. (laughs) I wasn't expecting that, you know, things like that. Can you take me back to the early days, you know, because one of the things about writing Midnight Sun and rewriting the story of, of Twilight from a different perspective means that it's an opportunity to go back to the beginning of when you wrote it in the first place. And I think it's become so ubiquitous in our culture that it's hard to believe that it was um, written at all. So when you think back to writing the very first drafts of what, what would become Twilight, what comes to mind? Like what, what are some images that come to mind of that time? At that time, um, Twilight was just this incredible escape. It was a dream world that I got to spend a bunch of time in. Um, I didn't think about publishing it. I wasn't worried about an audience. I was absolutely just entertaining myself. And it was a great time. You know, it was, it's happy memories when it was just me and the story. And I could kind of, you know, I hadn't written a book before, but I was an avid reader my whole life. And I was kind of uh, astonished by how much better it was to create your own story. And it wasn't just, not just like the daydreaming variety where you sit there and come up with a story and kind of flesh it out, but don't do anything with it, but actually writing it down, making it concrete so you can go back and revisit it and, and you know, tinker with it, make it just a little bit better. Um, such a more exciting process than, than just reading a book. Um, so I, I loved it. It was a, it was a fantastic experience. And and the the whole idea for it came to you in a dream, is that right? It did. Um, I was in the early stages of being a young mother. My memory had become non-trustworthy. <laughs> and so when I had this really interesting dream and I was like, oh, wow, you know, you want to go back to sleep, but you know, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to get back into the dream, you know, but what was going to happen next? And, and I didn't want to forget about it. So I'm like, well, let me just write this down. <laughs> And that's when I discovered like, oh, wow, this feels amazing to write this down and let's keep going and find out what happens next. Something very spooky about that. Spooky, really. (laughs) Yeah, isn't there? Like, I think that I was listening to Paul McCartney talk about yesterday and he yesterday came to him in a dream, right? Uh, The song. And he said he woke up and he just started writing it. And he said, you know, I think there's something very strange about that in that like the thing that really changed my life sort of just came to me. Um, I didn't seek it out. It just came to me. That's what I mean by by spooky, I guess, Stephanie. I guess it didn't feel that way to me because there were there were probably a lot of dreams that could have been something I would I, I I'm a vivid dreamer and I just that was just the first time I'd I'd sat down and written it out. Um, so maybe there were a lot of opportunities that I, I had missed up until that point. 
If you have another dream and feel like passing it on to me, I'll take it just, just to let you know. Oh, oh no, I, I hoard them. I keep the good ones and <laughs> I have files of things that I, I want to finish writing about someday. I hope you have a dream journal by now, at least. Uh, I have I have dream files on my computer. <laughs> That's where they go. <laughs> so this new book or newish book is isn't exactly news to the loyal fans of Twilight. You've been writing it off and on for over a decade. Back in two thousand eight, a rough version of the first fourteen chapters was leaked online, and this is what you wrote at the time. I feel too sad about what has happened to continue working on Midnight Sun, so it is on hold indefinitely. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What does it feel like as an artist to have? part of a work out there or part of this book out there before it was finished? It was, it was a really overwhelming time right then. I mean, I was completely um, sideswiped by that one. I didn't, I didn't know where the leak had come from. I didn't know if my computer had been hacked. I didn't know what was going on. And it was um, right in the middle of a lot of, uh, you know, the movie was going on and there was so much scrutiny uh, and I just was super overwhelmed. I'm a, a fairly shy, introverted person, and and all of that was real outside my comfort zone. And so it just kind of felt like, you know, too much, too much um, at that point. And it was it wasn't something I. It took me a while to be able to write anything, just because I was so nervous that that my computer wasn't safe, and that I, you know, who knows who's looking at things. Uh, as an introvert, you kind of want to work in in your own dark little space where no one knows what you're doing. Um, so, you know, that was, that was a lot of the emotion that was just being overwhelmed and, and a little paranoid. <laughs> how did you get over it? Time. Like now it's hard to remember how that felt because it was so long ago and there was, and time to be alone with the story. Um, it helped, you know, I, I have a fairly good idea of where the leak came from at this point. I was going to ask, <laughs> did, you, I, did you ever solve that mystery? I'm pretty sure, you know, it's just, it, it before things got crazy, I belonged to um, writers group. I had friends, a family, who uh, I would let read a copy of what I was working on now and then. Um, always people who, you know, they would never make a copy and share it. Obviously not, because they were my friends. <laughs> but I apparently was wrong about that. Oh my! What a if you don't mind me saying so, what a betrayal. Well, I don't think anybody meant harm by it. I think it was more of an enthusiasm, but you know, it wasn't something obviously I would have said yes to. Um, but yeah, and it got bigger, obviously, than I would have wanted. Of course. Did you did, did you ever reach out to that person? I didn't. I did not. Well, um, you know, I, I what would I, I say? You know, I, I, I think you did this horrible thing to me. You know, it doesn't help anything. I guess you're right. I mean, that's the it's it's good of you. You seem to be taking the the high road. Was there ever a time where you thought? You might be done with Twilight for good? Oh, lots of times. You know, anytime that it just, when it was at its most popular, that's when it's the hardest for me. Like I was able to finish Midnight Sun because it's been such a long time since I've had to be out in a public eye and and I could just work on it alone and kind of tell myself, eh, you know, it doesn't matter. Everyone's forgotten it by now. No one's going to read this. You're fine. <laughs> that's And and that's kind of what I, I, I really thought it had been so long that nobody would care. And, and so it'd just be quiet. <laughs> What keeps you coming back to it? Well, with this one specifically, there is the knowledge that a lot of really sweet readers, very nice, generous people have just said, the only thing that I really want is to read Midnight Sun, to have that finished. And one of those people is my mother, um, who just always has said, that's just the only thing I want. 
And in fact, one of the times that I got restarted into Midnight Sun was a Mother's Day when I had nothing, I had no ideas, did not know what to get her. And she had said many times that if she could just have Midnight Sun written through the meadow scene of Twilight, that that's all she really needed. And so I pulled it out and dusted it off and I did not make that Mother's Day. But the next one I did, um, it took me a year to get through. That was the, really the hardest part to write. And and so just trying to do a Mother's Day present was one of the restarts. <laughs> has your mother read it yet? She has. Well, I gave her a copy when it was first when it was the first rough draft that was finished. She was she received. What a lovely Mother's Day present that was for her then. <laughs> you know, it, it does it does feel like a bit of a long road to get in this book out though, doesn't it? Oh, it's it's been an insanely long road. I hope it never takes me this long to write a book again. And I hope not, there's never a book that's as difficult to write as this one. Um, because it's been uh, a real, you know, obstacle, this thing that will not be finished, this thing that's so difficult to to get around. But I feel like I can't really start something new because that's what everybody wants. Um, it's been a real challenge. Why? Like, why? Why was it so hard? Um, because the the thing that fuels me when I'm writing is that ability to create, to be creative, to kind of make something new and exciting. And so when you're stuck in a story where you're locked into dialogue actions um, and you can't bend those really, uh, there's no, there's no creativity. It's just trying to solve all these problems. Like why would this have happened? Why would this person have done this? Let me make it make sense, but I don't get to create anything. Um, So there, there, there was no fuel. It went very slowly. I think that when we read books from other people's perspectives or when we can see a story we know from other people's perspectives, it at least makes me always think about empathy. You know, it reminds me of the idea of just being able to look at life through other people's eyes. You know, what do you hope this adds to people's understandings of the book that that come before it? I, I hope that they can be what's the right word? Forgiving, loving towards Edward, even though he's not as perfect as I think some people wanted him to be. Um, I think that as a writer, I should be able to go in and write the book from any character's perspective. Like I should know what's going on enough that when some small character that has two or three lines, what, what was his side of this whole thing? I should be aware of that as a writer. I shouldn't just know my main character's world. Um, and so hopefully this just gives a fuller sense to the story. Um, there are a lot of bits that were fun in the midst of it. Um, anytime it was just Edward alone and I could create what was going on, those those were the best, the best parts for me. Um, and I think that to see the story from the non-human perspective, you know, the human perspective we get, that's us. <laughs> but being not human and having very different priorities and needs, I think makes us have to kind of look at how we interpret stories as humans. Are you going to keep doing this with the other books in the series? Is there, is there a, another version of new moon coming up or anything? No, never. <laughs> um, like I said, Edward is a stressful person uh, to write. He is a pessimist. He is an overthinker. There's a lot of agony um, and new moon is his worst experience. And I don't think I could, could survive writing that from his experience, his, his perspective. It would be 
a nightmare to live through that. Well, uh, well I mean, I, I appreciate what you're saying there, that this is uh, – writing Edward is in some ways writing yourself. I mean, it's 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 someone like yourself, you know, who deals with anxiety and, and deals with pessimism and, and deals with the, you know, the, the pressure of these things. And you, you, you told me earlier, you, were, you sort of write about your mental state through Edward. Did you learn something new about yourself writing through Edward this time? Um, maybe a little bit. Um, I hadn't really recognized, uh, one of my issues is I, I have intrusive thoughts, um, about horrible things happening to the people I love. And Edward has some real issues with that, um, which actually explains some of his worst behavior in the novel is just that, you know, sense that of impending doom. Um, and I, I hadn't put my finger on the fact that that was what I was doing. I don't know if it helps me to know that, <laughs> but, but at least I'm aware, I guess. Well, I got to tell you, it's been really illuminating to talk to you. Are there still Twilight stories you want to tell at all or stories in that world that you want to tell? There are still stories. Um, I'd, I'd love to get to them. There's, I, I feel like right now I, what I need is to create a new world with new rules, new people, a new map at the beginning, you know, something, something totally different. Um, but it does feel like I need to go back and, and someday tell what happens to Renesme, what happens to Alice, like where it goes from there. And, and maybe that's something I do, um, you know, and then just on, on, on a, an interview and just say, okay, here's the whole story. If I don't write it, I'll at least have to tell them somehow. <laughs> you can tell me if you'd like, you know, you can tell me the whole. You, uh, I'm not, I'm not there yet. I have to be sure <laughs> that it's, it's the end. Like on my deathbed, I'll record the whole thing and it'll be super messy and out of order, but it'll be there. Well, you know, it's been really nice to talk to you. And I got to say, I hope you take this in the right way. I think, you know, when people struggle with uh, anxiety or self-deprecating thoughts or, 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 you know, some pessimism around themselves, there's always this thought that if we get to this next stage, maybe this will all go away. And um, it's, it's lovely to hear that, you know, it's something we're, we all just deal with. It's just part of being human. It is indeed. <laughs> well, I, I really do appreciate you talking to me so, so honestly about it. Before we go, you often post playlists of songs related to your books. And the first song you posted for Midnight Sun is by Connor Obers by Bright Eyes. It's called First yes. Day of My Life. We're going to play it. Oh, how nice. Can you set it up? Why, why did this song mean so much to you when you were writing this book? Um, when I first heard this song, it just seemed like such a pure expression of, of that love that's just, that's just different from everyone else, that moment when every single thing changes. Um, there are towards the end of the song, it gets more into a more realistic love where, you know, we have to work on this. We'll see where it goes. But in the beginning of the song, it's just my entire life changed. My entire life didn't exist until you. And, and I felt like for that, that describes fantasy love very, very well. And, and that moment for Edward as a character where he kind of gives in to the fact that this is the love of his life. For good or ill, there is nothing else. Stephanie, so nice to talk to you. Oh, thank you. You're a very nice person to talk to. <laughs> my guest is Stephanie Meyer, the author of Midnight Sun. Here's A First Day of My Life by Bright Eyes. I'm so excited you're playing the song. Now I'm going to have to go listen to it. <laughs> this is the first day of my life. Swear I was born right in the doorway. I went out in the rain, suddenly everything changed. They're spreading blankets on the beach Yours is the first face that I saw 
That's Bright Eyes with First Day of My Life. In the lead-up to the release of her new book, Midnight Sun, Stephanie Meyer would release songs from her playlist. That was the first track she picked. Just before that, I hope you heard Tom Power's conversation with Stephanie. It's just riveting to hear her talk about how a writer should be able to write the same story from different characters' perspectives. Midnight Sun is out everywhere today. Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with from Something Else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Talia Schlanger, in for Tom Power. This is Q. Have a listen to this. That's new music by Dizzy, a band out of Oshawa, Ontario, off their new album, The Sun and Her Scorch. And people have been waiting for this. The band got a lot of recognition with their first album, Baby Teeth, and they've been hard at work on their second. The song you're hearing right now is called Roman Candles. And even though you might be getting a summery vibe from all those bright synths and the soaring vocals, Katie Munshaw, Dizzy's front woman, says it deals with some of the more difficult stuff she's been thinking about lately, particularly the passing of time. Katie's going to tell you a bit more about the album now. Katie Munshaw, welcome to Q. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, it's a pleasure. This album, the new Dizzy album, is such a leap, and I loved listening to it. Thanks. Yeah, uh, sonically, for sure, for us. Yeah, absolutely. So I understand you recorded some of the album in, in a church in Montreal, but then a bunch of it in your mom's basement. Can you please take me there and paint me a picture of your mom's basement in Oshawa as recording studio? Yeah. So when we did the record in the basement, it wasn't really what it looks like right now. Um, we actually shared the room with my brother's girlfriend who um, taught uh, to children in uh, China at night. Uh, so there was like alphabet letters on the wall and uh, like stuffed animals everywhere um, mixed with like synths on the wall. And uh, it's a very, very interesting space. <laughs> <laughs> An eclectic live workspace. And and did your mom do any like mom stuff while you were recording? She like coming, coming down with fruit punch while you're recording? Uh, no, but yeah, very grateful that she uh, allowed us to do so. I mean, there'd be a lot of days where um like, mom, we got to track lead vocals today, so we got to turn the furnace off because uh, it makes too much noise. Or like, 
you'd be about to track a lead vocal and uh, you'd hear the toilet flush or something. Oh. Oh, God, we got to wait another <laughs> couple minutes. Um, trials and tribulations. Right. Um, on, the, on the one hand, yeah. you got the free studio space. And then on the other hand, mom can't go to the bathroom all day and she's like upstairs shivering while you're recording. Exactly. exactly. In our house coat. Yeah. Oh, goodness. So your first album, Baby Teeth, came out a couple years ago. It was hugely successful. You guys won a Juno. You were touring with bands like Tokyo Police Club and U.S. Girls and Death Cab for Cutie. That was amazing success to have for your first go around. What was it like when you came back home after all those experiences? Yeah, it was it was pretty shocking. Um, I mean, you're on such a high and when you get home, it, it, everything kind of just stands still. And I think that's what Roman Candles is about mostly is um, just sort of that disconnect coming home and, and, and um, talking to your friends who are kind of just like on a different plane than you. Um, a lot of my friends went to university and got nine to five jobs and are starting to settle down with families and, and buying homes. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a shock to the system. Yeah. Roman candles was the song that we heard in the intro and in the, in the chorus, you sing, I'm just stuck in this town. I can't handle watching you light it up from a North end parking lot while I'm just setting off Roman candles. Um, but it's an interesting sentiment because I imagine that some of the people who would have gone to university and then gotten those nine to five jobs are looking at you and saying like, wow, Katie went and pursued her dream of, of, of playing music and she's been on tour with all these amazing people and now she's like back working on an album. Um, I mean, w- did you feel that as well? Totally. Yeah, I, I, I hear that a lot from friends. And I, I think it, the saying is true, like the grass is always greener and like I love my life and I wouldn't. I wouldn't trade it. And I'm so happy that I've made this decision, but it is scary to know that I, I do want to have a family or, you know, settle down one day um, or but like buy a home, like silly things like that. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's just like interesting <laughs> to navigate emotionally. Yeah. It's something to think about. So, so tell me a little bit about what it was like to make this, this new album. When you stepped into studio, what, how did you feel like you had grown as an artist since the first time that you went about making a record? Well, we decided before we even started writing that we wanted to produce it ourselves. That was really important to us. Um, and the album started uh, last summer. We rented a cottage up in Northern Ontario and we just set up all of our gear and jammed for a week straight and we wrote half the record up there. And then wow. by the time, by the time fall rolls around, um, yeah, we, we booked the studio in Montreal and um yeah, we just we just did it. I don't know. We just started flinging stuff at the wall and, and we just really enjoyed the process. That sounds great. Sometimes you hear people talk about their second album um, and talk about getting in their heads so much or being filled with with fear about replicating the success that they had first time around. It sounds like you you really got around that. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a moment of panic. I, I, um, I think when we went to write the new record, I was really stuck on the idea that the first record was about a lot of romantic heartbreak and, and being in your teens. And um, I was like, Oh God, you know, how am I going to write another heartbreak song? I'm not really going through that right now. And, and when I did try to write songs like that, it, it didn't come out genuine at all. Um, and that's when I like figured out that you can write songs about a lot of other things um, that aren't romantic heartbreak. And that's what this record is about. It's amazing growth. Um, I want to play another song from the record that is that is definitely about one of those other things that you found to write about. This song is called 10, and maybe we'll have a listen to it first, and then you can tell us a bit about it. Great. Called you at 10, 
to check in Said I'd be late to go on to bed And her hair had gone gray And her memory's thin So I wasn't surprised to find you like this So straightened you That is the song 10. It's from the new album, The Sun and Her Scorch, by the band Dizzy. My guest is Katie Munshaw of the band Dizzy. You're listening to Q. So Katie, there's some very vivid imagery in in what we just heard. Tell me a little bit about the story that you're telling in this song. Yeah, that song stemmed from the chorus. The chorus came first, and that that lyric sort of stems from my fear of death and... um, and then from there, I wanted it to sort of turn into my other fear of, you know, saying goodbye to the people that I love, um, which is um, death in, in, uh, in at its core. Um, yeah, that song was so fun to write, weirdly. It's wait, most- wait, 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 wait. <laughs> like, it's about my fear of death, my fear of saying goodbye. It was I know, super fun to write. <laughs> yeah, so we started writing it at the cottage, and um, I had the voice note on my phone, and... Um, I knew it was a devastating song, and um, but I love writing it so much. I remember just like dancing around the cottage and like ordering Charlie, our uh, drummer, to to play certain certain things, and and uh, and I just I knew how I wanted that song to sound, and um, it was so joyful to write weirdly. Huh. I hope people go ahead and listen to the whole song. Like we didn't play the whole thing on the radio, but the way that it builds and the bridge and, and sort of the way that you, you create um, tension and drama musically uh, is, is, is really impressive. Tell me a little bit about like, like building a song out. Yeah, that one in particular, we were really meticulous with. Um, and it was the first time that I had ever thought of a song as like a human. Um, we wanted that song by the end. Um, when it gets kind of chaotic, um, I really visualized that part as somebody dying and panicking at the same time. Because I feel like that is what happens. I, I'm not quite sure, obviously. but um, And then by the end of it, you kind of hear the the synths chugging and slowing down. And I wanted that to sound like the the breaking down or like the... the um, yeah, the breaking down of a body when it when it dies. Wow. So, so death and and saying goodbye and the passing of time are are really prominent on on this song and on the album in general. You're in your twenties. Why why do you think that's on your mind so heavily? I'm not. I'm actually not sure. I think that's something that I've always just thought about and and been afraid of. Um, yeah, I don't. I'm not sure. <laughs> so I've been cursed. <laughs> oh well, as far as things go to be afraid of, I mean that's that's as good a thing to be afraid of as any. I'd say so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, your your grandmother makes an appearance on this record. Uh, she actually, she opens your record. A voicemail of hers opens the first song on the album. What's the story there? Yeah, so that first song, Worms, is basically like an umbrella for the record of, of what the, the emotion is. And the emotion, I think, is this undergroundness um, and this feeling of being suffocated or trapped um, in sadness and I got that voicemail from her one afternoon. I was feeling pretty bummed out. And um, I just thought it was such a good, like, symbol of um, someone to love you through your um, sadness. Right, because in the message, she's calling you just to see if you're okay, huh? Yeah, just to catch up. And uh, she was uh, wondering how I was doing. Yeah. 
What did Grandma Carol think when she heard uh, she heard herself make it onto your record? She was so happy. Yeah, she she teared up. I have never seen her cry, so it was really special. Oh, you'd never seen your grandma cry your whole life. No, she is uh, she's a tough gal. <laughs> wow, that had to be something. Yeah, it was pretty good. How does the message that she gave to you about wanting everything to be okay sort of um, square with the message that you want the album to convey? I'm not sure. I think that I'm happy that I have somebody like that in my life and I have people around me. And I hope that people um, who listen can sort of search those people out in their lives. And um, I don't know, I always feel like Dizzy, the songs are really sad, but there is an air of hope um, in most of the songs. So I I, I hope that uh, that's what my grandma's voice is for the record. Hmm. We've been talking about Dizzy's new album, but Katie, I want to take you back with a different piece of music for a second. This is not a Dizzy song. Have a listen. It's about as bad as it could be. <laughs> Seems everybody's bugging me. Like nothing wants to go my way. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay, Katie. What are we listening to? <laughs> We are listening to Up by Shania. I heard you love Shania Twain, so we couldn't couldn't let a, a Canadian radio interview go by without talking about Shania. What do you love so much about her? She's just she's just the greatest. I know. I think she was the first like that pop act that I fell in love with, and my mom will tell you that um, at the mall when I was younger that I would uh, dance on the benches and sing "Man, I Feel Like a Woman." <laughs> really. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. man, where were the video? I hope I hope Love there's her. video of that somewhere. Is there? I don't think so. No. Just uh, all of my mom's memory. <laughs> oh my goodness! But but there is like the the songs are really enjoyable. But she is a craftsperson. Like these these songs hit people and 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 are hits for a reason. What do you appreciate about Shania Twain as a as a songwriter? I think just I'm a sucker for a good story song and I think that's what she does and I think that's what a lot of pop country music does and that's why I gravitate towards it sometimes yeah well thanks for giving us the opportunity to listen to some some Shania today of course yeah (laughs) so I know that Dizzy can't tour right now in the traditional sense but you guys do have a show coming up in Prince Edward County in in Ontario along with the band Stars how's that gonna work you know, beats me. I think I'm just going to show up and uh, in my mask and uh, do what they tell me to do. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I feel like it's going to be once in a lifetime type of thing. So kind of excited. Yeah. Right. And I think people will be in their cars, right? It's like sort of a, a, a drive-in thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, hopefully, I mean, hopefully by then, maybe people will be allowed out of their cars just to like, at least stand up. I'm not sure. I'm hoping. I hate playing to people sitting down. Right. Well, as Shania Twain says... Up, up, up. It can only go up from here. Totally. I think we'll leave it there. Congrats on the new album, Katie. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, pleasure. Katie Munchoff runs the band Dizzy. Dizzy's latest album, The Sun and Her Scorch, is out now. And uh, here's a song from it. This is Sunflower. Take me to the roof. I want to hear the sound of what a broken heart does when I fling it to the ground.
That's a song off Dizzy's new album, The Sun and Her Scorch. The song is called Sunflower. Just before that, you heard my conversation with Katie Munshaw. She fronts the band Dizzy, and their new album is out everywhere now. So not a whole lot of arguing around here in the Q office, mostly snack choices and other snack choices. But one topic that got very heated not too long ago is which rom-com is the rom-com to rule all rom-coms. There are tons of classics to choose from. Clueless, The Notebook, The Bodyguard. And Jenny Han has added another one to the mix, To All the Boys I've Loved before. It's the first of a trilogy of books, and the film adaptation is one of Netflix's most viewed original films. More than 85 million people watched it in the first month it came out in 2018. The second film came out earlier this year, and if you don't know the series, it follows a girl named Lara Jean as she navigates high school. Her big secret, she writes love letters to five of her crushes and then locks those letters away. So when they accidentally get sent out, in the mail. It's pretty brutal. That nightmare situation is actually anchored in Jenny Han's real experience of high school. And just before the movie premiered, Tom Power asked her about it nervously. Did you write these notes yourself? I did. I used to write these love letters um, when I was so consumed with passion that I had to like get it all out on the page to get over that person. So I would put all of my emotions on the page, and then I would put it in an envelope, seal it up, put it in a hat box, and then put it under the bed. Oh, my. It reminds me of that thing that people tell you to do, like if you're mad at your boss or something like that. You, you write the email, but you never send it, and you don't put anything in the, in the to line or something like that. Yeah, I think it works because you just are able to be really like raw with the emotions, and then you feel better. You feel like cleansed afterwards. So in the, in the book, uh, Laura Jean's letters get sent accidentally, not accidentally, but they get sent. I'm trying not to give it away. Um, <laughs> you. uh, but yours, yours didn't, right? Thank God, no, mine did not. Although, you know, when the book came out in 2014, I thought it would be really a fun kind of lark if I brought one of my letters with me on tour um, just to read for the crowd as a fun little thing. And the first night was a launch, and it was just all friends and family and super sweet fans. And I started reading from one of the letters, and everyone was loving it, but I was so mortified that I never did it again. Oh my God! What was that? What was that like for you to be standing up on stage? Because I guess you're right. It sounds like a good idea in theory. It sounds great. Yeah, in yeah. theory. And then you know what it is. I think that um, <laughs> I think that humiliation is one of those rare emotions where when you feel it, when you think about something that was embarrassing, you feel that emotion as intensely as you did when it happened. Yeah. And um, for me, reading the letter, it was so such a vulnerable act because it's like reading your diary. It's such a vulnerable time, too. Like, I know you were, you were a children's librarian. Most of all your books take place in this sort of world of, of adolescence. Um, what is it about that time, those teenage years, that really fascinates you, you so much? I think it's a time of a lot of firsts. And when you experience something for the first time, it's just so much more visceral um, and, I think, profound. 
And now as an adult, you know, I look back at my first and the middle and then you never know when it's going to be the last time. And the middle can be very blurry, but I think those first just kind of stay with you forever. It's a it's a complicated time. I remember when I was watching the film uh, yesterday, I felt so much like I was back back in high school, and that wasn't a uh, necessarily a good thing. <laughs> like that wasn't that wasn't a, that wasn't a. But there's something about those like stories of of even when you're all grown up, uh, even when you got an old beard. Uh, there's something about those teenage stories from way back when you're in high school. They, they really bring you back. Hey. Well, I'm glad to hear that it brought you back. That's intentional. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, I think um, especially with the movie, which I think kind of hits on – doesn't it have a little bit of an 80s vibe to you? Yeah. It, it did for me. Yeah. Like it kind of hit back on some of those old um, teen movies that I would watch as a kid. But I think it still feels of 2018. You know, So it's like paying homage to what came before and then um, kind of moving uh, into the now. But – and this is where I was going with that – what is it like for you to constantly sort of have to relive your high school experiences over and over again? Uh, you know, it's not bad. Um, <laughs> I think that it's kind of fun. Um, you know, to me, the biggest draw of doing it is my readers. Um, I would say they're half adult women and half like um, teenage women. And I don't know when they – come to me and say, your book was the first book I ever read, or your book is what made me want to be a reader. That to me is like the biggest privilege of doing what I do. Mm. And, you know, that you can kind of stay with them their whole life in a way, because when you ask somebody what their favorite book is, or the most important book to them, it's usually a book from when they were a kid. And you're also writing for people who are not necessarily going to parties every single night back in high school, you know? Exactly. Because your, your characters are the, are the kind who, you know, are happy to stay in on a Saturday night and watch the Golden Girls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that to me, I wanted to represent a girl that maybe you see a bit less in media. And I think it's totally great and fine to be the girl that goes out and, you know, dates and has all this fun and like, you know, parties it up. I think that's great. I think it's also great if you just want to be low-key Netflix and bake at home. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to stay in and yeah, make make brownies and yeah, watch Room with Yeah, just PJs and yeah, cozy. They need people like us need books too. I hear you. Yeah, I think I still do that now. Um, what I should mention that you're you're Korean American. Your main character in this in this book and in in the series and in the film is Korean American too. What did you want to do differently with this character that maybe you didn't see in other Asian American characters in young adult novels? I think that a lot of times when there is a book about a person of color, it ends up being about their struggle um, being a person of color. And I think that you rarely get to see somebody just be doing regular teenage things and falling in love and having fights with their friends because it it always comes back to um, that struggle. And so I wanted it to be – it's a part of her identity, but it's not the whole of her identity. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Q. Jenny Han is my guest. She's the writer behind the New York Times best-selling author and best-selling novel, To All the Boys I Loved Before. It's been adapted into a film for Netflix. Jenny, what's that like? Do you have to like give up control of your narrative? Because you, you spend so much time writing and crafting and sculpting this book, and then it's, it's kind of given to someone else in so many ways to be made into a film. It is. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people – kind of misunderstand an author's role. 
um, in a movie adaptation where most authors have little to no control whatsoever. Um, Once you sell the rights, it's kind of like you're handing over your creation to somebody else. And then they kind of make their interpretation of that. You know, so it's like two separate art forms. Um, And for me, I was really pretty zen about it um, just because I was just happy to see it made. Um, and I've had friends with um, movies get made, and I could see how that goes, and I think it's easier to just kind of relax into it. And I also felt like I had a good rapport with the team, and we had a shared vision. And my priority was really just to be that kind of ambassador, spokesperson um, of the books to represent my fans, because I know what really speaks to them in the books and what they care about. And I just wanted to make sure that they got that experience. So were, were there times you had to talk to the filmmakers and be like, hey, there needs to be a little bit more of this because really that's at the heart of the book? Yeah, I would say, you know, hey, or here's an example. Um, I was on set for when they were filming one of the first scenes in the movie and she's lying in bed and she has her um, feet up on the wall and she was wearing sneakers. And I was like, hey, not to be annoying, but um, can we take off her shoes because like, in Asian households, you don't wear, like, shoes, and you don't wear them in bed. Right. And you don't put them on the wall. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I felt like that little details like that make up a household, a family, and then it feels real. Um, or I was like, hey, can we make sure that there's, like, a rice cooker in the kitchen because they would have one? Um, things like that. Did you get to talk to, uh, I should say, your lead character, uh, Laura Jean, is played by by Jubilee from X-Men, played, yes. played by Atlanta Condor. Do you remember the first time you sat down to talk to her about the role? I was texting with her a bit. Um, I had first heard of her because of X-Men. And then I kind of was just watching her because, you know, there aren't that many Asian-American actresses of that age. And so I was just hoping um, that somebody would kind of like spring up um, that could headline the movie. And I think, you know, not to get like inside baseball, but in Hollywood – there's this perception that um, you have to have somebody who's like a green lightable star in order to find investors in something. And green so, lightable, like a big, a big yes, star. Yeah. Yes. Somebody who people go, yes, yes, um, we'll say yes to the whole movie because this person's going to be in it. Right. Right. Yeah. And when there's so few opportunities for people, they don't really get an opportunity to be at that level. You know. Um, so I was really excited about Lana, and I had her in my head um, before we even started casting. So did you did you get to talk about the character? Did she have questions for you about the character? We did, and she had read the book really diligently, and um, we talked about it quite a bit, and even to the point where there's like a scene in the movie that's like in a hot tub, and um, that's the scene. <laughs> I'm trying not to spoil it here, but <laughs> well, you know, if you're listening spoilers. to this and saying scene in a hot tub, well, what you're thinking is right. Yeah, yeah, there's like a little bit of a makeout, and I was texting her the night before because I was nervous, and I was like, "Just remember, it's very um, still innocent and chaste, and you've never really like kissed somebody like this before, and just remember you're nervous." And she was like, "I got it, I got it." <laughs> <laughs> so when you finally sat down to watch the film, completed film f- for the first time, how did that feel? I was nervous because I could just think about my readers and you know, how excited they were, and I just wanted it to be good for them. And I was really happy because I think it is. Were you home? Like, did you watch it like we would do on, on, on Netflix? Or No, I was um, at a hotel because I was on tour. Right. And so I um, watched it from there. you got to tell me more about that. I mean, how did you feel when this thing, you know, this is, this, this is this thing you wrote. These characters were imagined in a certain way. This narrative has kind of consumed your life for so long. And then 
you actually get to see it in a, kind of a tight hour and a half. What's what's that like? I mean, it was surreal. But you know what? Like, what was even more surreal for me was when I was first on set and I saw how many people it takes to make a movie and all the equipment and, like, cranes and stuff. Oh, yeah. That, to me, was was really wild because when you write a book, you're just by yourself for the most part. Mm-hmm. And it's not a collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about people who spent, like, you know, a month and a half and then editing it and doing all that stuff, it was kind of a huge thought for me to think that I created this world and then people spend the time to make it. And not, not only created this world, but in some ways they're acting out a, a version of you as well, right? I mean, kind of. What's the hell, man? That's, 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 I mean, I can't imagine having to watch my high school memories play out on Netflix. A little. I mean, my sister loves it because um, one of the characters is based on her. So she delights in telling people that Kitty is, is her. Oh, good. She has something to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you said that your book was the first young adult novel with a, an Asian woman on the cover to be a New York Times bestseller. When you, when you found out that your book was on that list, uh, how, how did it feel? It felt really great because, you know, there was risk involved with that. I I understood that. But to me, it was worth it. Um, You know, and I had said to my publisher, I was like, I really want to make sure that we do a photographic cover, not illustrated or um, a type-heavy cover, because I really wanted Asian-American girls to have the experience of walking into a bookstore and then seeing somebody who looks like them on the shelf, centered, um, like they belong there. Have you had any stories of people coming up to you and, and, and talking to you about what that meant to them? Yeah, so many. Um, you know, people reach out to me on social media and, and say how much the books mean to them, and that makes the whole thing worth it for me. But what about you? Like, if you had read a book like this when you were 16, if you had watched a Netflix film like this when you were 16, what do you think it would have meant to you? I think it would have meant everything to me. You know, I think I first conceived of the story thinking about Little Women and Anne of Green Gables and these great um, classic literary heroines, um, you know, who are spunky and optimistic and all these things, but I never saw one that looked like me. And so I really wanted to offer that for the girls of today, because not just for the Asian American girls, but I think it's important for everybody to see that, how important it is um, to reflect that. Well, it's it's a really beautiful film, and I I really loved reading the book. And I, I I'm assuming you and I both didn't weren't in high school when there were cell phones and Instagram and all that stuff. Yes, you were correct. Like I had I had a flip phone. I had the, you know I had one of those gigantic like um, Zach Morris Saved by the Bell Did you phones. Really? You know, and it was my dad's, and I got to take it sometimes. I was going Whoa. to a party or something like that. But I do like, and it seems like the Instagram in high school is a brave new world of stress. For high school students, and you've you managed to capture that pretty well, even though I'm, I'm guessing you weren't immersed in it. I wasn't. Um, I got my first cell phone in college, and that was, like, a big deal. Um, but high school, we had pagers. Um, <laughs> we guys <we had laughs> doctors? What were we? <laughs> you had to be called away for spleen surgery? I know. And I you know. just would, like, message, like, hey, or whatever. You could do that with the numbers. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think... I wanted the book to feel like a throwback and old-fashioned and classic. At the same time, I wanted it to feel like modern and fresh. Um, And you can't avoid social media and devices um, and have a book that feels modern. Jenny Han is the author of To All the Boys I've Loved Before, a trilogy of young adult novels. You can stream the film adaptations of the first two books on Netflix now. The last in the series is called Always and Forever, Lara Jean. And you can expect to hear from Netflix about a release date soon. That's it for Q, the podcast today. Coming up tomorrow, I will talk to Anita White. 
who for more than 20 years has been singing under the name Lady A. So this summer, when the country music band Lady Antebellum decided to officially change their name to Lady A, you can imagine this was a problem for the original Lady A. We will get into it, into uh, how she first responded and the moment her negotiations turned really difficult, what it's been like for her, all of it. I'm Talia Schlinger. I will be uh, with you all week in for Tom Power. Thanks for listening to Q. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.